I, I sit and listen to the song and listen to the singer, and I visualize the melody on the fingerboard, and then I visualize in my head what I've got to do to get that melody across, and then I just sit down and start playing it. That's what's kept me in the business for 40-plus years, you know, is being able to complement everything around you, and that's, that's the whole key. Hey everyone, this is Keith Billick here welcoming you to another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I have a great interview for you to hear today with a real, real special guest. And I would say that I can't wait for you to hear it, except I'm going to make you wait to hear it because it's another heavy news day at Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast headquarters. And I guess the first thing I will mention is that just like last week, this episode was recorded in an RV at the Milan Bluegrass Festival, and I explained a bit about that last week, how that came about. But um, special thanks are definitely in order for Jerry Eicher, who you may know as the host of the Old Hippie Bluegrass Show on various radio stations, and I'll put a link to that show in the show notes. But it was uh, Jerry who provided a very awesome little studio area on the uh, in the campgrounds for the Milan Bluegrass Festival that was his RV. So um, I was able to record the last episode with Derek Vaden in there and then also this episode. So special thanks to Jerry. Definitely made the podcasting experience way more comfortable than um, if I had just set up at a picnic table, which was what I was about to do. Another thing about the last episode with Derek Vaden, I was hoping that some more people would pick up this you you heard the the discussion about his hashtag on instagram called tuner tune thursday and basically what it is is you just record a video of yourself playing any sort of tune that uses the detuners it can be something that is already a well-known piece of music that uses those or write your own or take a a well-known melody and just play it using the detuners and then slap that hashtag on it and participate. So uh, this is this is my uh, invitation for everyone to to kind of get that hashtag going again. I would love to see that because Derek's videos are really cool, and I would just really love to see more of them. And I think it's a it's a fun project, and I think it's a good productive use of social media. Believe it or not, social media isn't always productive. I know, shocking, right? But yeah, hashtag Tune or Tune Thursday. Let's get it going. Speaking of social media, if you are on any of those platforms, uh, look me up and let's be internet friends or whatever. You can find me on Facebook. I'm Picky Fingers. On Instagram, I am Picky underscore Fingers. And on Twitter, I am just at Banjo Podcast. And also as a reminder, there's a Facebook group for listeners of the podcast And that's called, I had to look it up last time and now I have to do it again. I'm pretty sure it's just called Picky Fingers Podcast, listeners, fans, and friends or something like that. Uh, But check out that group. There's, we got a lot of members joined, which is awesome. I think we're well over 500 members in that group. And we get to chat, chat about banjos in general, episodes, tips, you know, just some fun stuff with other banjo people. Uh, Always a good time. So yeah, check that out. All right, the next thing. So last episode, I also mentioned that I had recorded a a great new banjo album by Aaron Jonah Lewis, 
and you should still check that out. And a lot of you did check it out and emailed me some positive comments about it, which is is totally cool. I knew you would like it. Uh, but I've also been doing a bit more playing and just had an EP release party for my dear friend and a talented singer and songwriter named Rochelle Clark. And she just put out an EP and I will put in the show notes. Um, I don't think there is a link yet to download it, but uh, I'm going to play a couple quick tracks off of it for you. And it's going to be called In Time by Rochelle Clark. It's not exactly bluegrass. It's more of a uh, rootsy folk music type of thing, but there is banjo on it all. And when you add banjo, it kind of ends up sounding a bit bluegrassy, whether you want it to or not. So it's got that going for it. Here is a clip from a tune called Wish Me Well. Hell is paid with good intentions. They say the road to hell is paved. So wish me well. Wish me well. Wish me And then just to give you a little contrast, there's uh, this is the one she refers to as her Tom Waits song, which is, um, it's going to be clear why she calls it that. This one's called Topiary Garden. So that's a quick taste of what that's all about. That's, again, Rochelle Clark's new EP called In Time. If you want to check out my banjo playing, that's a good way to do it. If you couldn't care less about my banjo playing but still want some uh, good singing and songs and other playing by other talented individuals, she hired a few other really, uh, really great musicians, um, also good friends of mine, Jason Denny playing mandolin and mandola and some guitar uh, John Sperendi playing electric and upright bass, and Billy Harrington is on the drums. And like I said, as soon as I have a link, that, that thing is fresh off the presses, so I don't think there's even a store set up or it's not quite on all the normal downloadable platforms yet, but um, it will be in time, as they say, and I'll, uh, I'll definitely blast out a link to that as soon as I get it. Today's special guest is Sammy Sheeler of the Lonesome River Band. Sammy is, without a doubt, one of the giants of modern bluegrass banjo playing. I mean, I mean that he's a giant both literally and figuratively. He's a tall dude, but also he's just won so many awards that are very well-deserved. He's won the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year 
a million times, and by a million, I think I think he's won it five times. He's won the Steve Martin Award and all sorts of other ones for recordings that he's been involved with and Spigma Awards. And he's just without a doubt one of the most influential modern players out there. He's just one of those players that every time you see him play, if he's stepping up to the mic for a solo, you can't help but have your head bobbing along. He's just so in the groove and and in the pocket with his band. So that's what makes him a great player, among other things, and he talks a lot about that. Really interesting to hear his take on practicing with a drum machine and his placement of the beats, depending on whether he's doing backup or, or, or what. And I'll let you hear that. Samuel explain it better than I'm about to anyway. Another important reminder that Eli Gilbert, who is one of these wizards of dissecting somebody's style and, and learning note for note versions of tunes and, and really breaking it down that way. He's making custom videos and tablature sheets based on each of these uh, Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast episodes. So he has made a video and a tab sheet that accompanies this Sammy Sheeler episode. And the only catch is you have to go to the Patreon page to access those. That's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And you need to sign up to support the podcast. It's very affordable, well worth it, I assure you, for the type of stuff that Eli is putting out there. And if you are someone who has seen some of Eli's content or you're already one of the Patreon subscribers, the least we should do for Eli is go to his YouTube page, click subscribe. He has his own Patreon page for what he does. He just has a ton of great banjo content out there. But I'm really honored that he provides my listeners with something a little special um, based on each of the episodes. So go to uh, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Another reward is to get publicly recognized and lauded with praise and admiration from all of your peers, or at least by me. And today we have two Patreon supporters to heap praises upon. The first is a gentleman named Craig Lascalzo, and he started playing banjo way back in the 70s when he was working for a hospital in Saudi Arabia, you know, the bluegrass hotbed of uh, Saudi Arabia. But anyway, I'm glad he found that. He's now back in Kentucky where he was rubbing shoulders with Sonny Osborne and J.D. Crow and Kristen Scott Benson taking lessons and trying to overcome uh, a bit of a setback. He had a stroke recently and he's trying his best to overcome some of the difficulties that that caused. So, Craig, we're all pulling for you. Keep on picking. It'll raise your spirits. And um, thanks again for becoming a Patreon supporter. The other Patreon supporter of today's episode is Adam Kerrigan. And Adam and I met kind of in a strange way. We're, we're online buddies. A lot of you know that my day job is in the legal field. I'm a licensed attorney, and there's a podcast that Adam and I both listen to called Opening Arguments, which is kind of a current events slash political podcast, but through the lens of like a legal perspective. And it's very entertaining for, for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. But that podcast has a, actually a very similar uh, Facebook group to the one that I've started for this podcast. And Adam and I were chatting about something completely unrelated to banjos, but he noticed that my photo had a banjo in it, so kind of struck up a conversation about that. And uh, here we are. I managed to uh, lure him over 
to the Peaky Fingers side, and now he's a Patreon supporter. So, Adam, hats off to you, man. Thank you so much for your support, and I'll uh, see you around on one of the two uh, podcast sites that we that we tend to frequent. So once again, become a Patreon supporter by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. That's also where you can find out how to get yourself on the list to receive those custom Eli Gilbert lessons. Uh, you can email the show, email me about anything at all, anything you want. Uh, Picky fingers, banjo podcast at gmail.com. But now let's go to the featured interview for today, featuring the 70,000 time IBMA banjo player of the year award winner and one of everyone's favorite bluegrass banjo players and one heck of a nice guy. He knows what he's talking about, folks. Here's uh, Sammy Sheeler. This is uh, Sammy Sheeler with the Launchham River Band. I'm from a little town called Meadows of Dan, Virginia. Uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains in the southern part of Virginia. I I think I was destined to play a banjo. I had one grandfather that played and the other one loved the music. Uh, but between the two of them, I had no hope. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so uh, my earliest memories are being around a banjo and started playing, I guess when I was about five, learned uh, Cripple Creek and old joe clark on a little banjo that my grandfather the one that played he had made a scaled down banjo for me to kind of fool around with and every time he'd come over to the house he'd tune it up for me and i kept fiddling around until i finally learned cripple creek and uh just uh went from there were you trying a three three finger style already no i I just kind of played around with two fingers for a while he played three three finger style he he actually got interested in the banjo by way of charlie pool uh Hmm. his father was a fiddler and charlie pool would uh he he was from from about 30 miles east of us and so when he would be passing through, he always knew where he could go play a tune and have a drink. And okay. my great-grandfather, um, he had a grist mill, and usually back in the 20s, if you had a, or teens and 20s, if you had a grist mill, you made liquor. So he mm-hmm. always had something for Charlie to drink, and uh, that Charlie would stay sometimes for a week. So <laughs> just playing tunes and, yeah, and yeah. enjoying the, the yeah. beverages. That's it. The blood was running, and I was running too. Give my feet some exercise, had nothing else to do. One morning, this four day, if I lose, let me lose. I don't care how much I lose. If I lose a hundred dollars while I'm trying to win a dime. While my baby, she eat money all the time. Uh, he he's been dubbed as the original country music outlaw. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a he was a rough character, and uh, 
but he would stay around there. My grandfather learned how to play guitar to play along with him uh-huh. and then watch Charlie enough to, to pick up some banjo stuff. And he kind of had a style that was kind of a mixture of Charlie Poole and then what he heard from Scruggs later on. Okay. So, so were you listening to Scruggs even back then, too? Uh, Is that where you were I, getting some of that stuff from? Well, I remember... My first memories of TV was watching Platinum Scruggs on TV. We got that okay. on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom said that the only thing I would watch on TV would be commercials and Platinum Scruggs. <laughs> so it, it was definitely an influence. And then I got to see Platinum Scruggs when I was about four in Hillsville, Virginia, at the BFW building. And I just remember the hats and the suits and you know, seeing Earl play the banjo, I didn't have enough sense to, to really comprehend what the music was all about, but it definitely attracted my attention. Yeah. And uh, just the the whole show of it, you know, attracted my attention. And um, But really, I didn't get exposed to Scruggs music until later in my early teens. And I had a friend who... Uh, had a great record collection, and he used to make me eight-track tapes. And uh, I would try to learn some stuff off of that, but with the eight-track, you didn't have a rewind. So it he would put, he would use 120-minute tapes, and so that meant 30 minutes per track. So okay. if you heard a lick that played by... You had to wait. You had to wait another thirty minutes <laughs> yeah. to find it again. For it to loop back so around. So you, you you got distracted by twenty more by the time you got back to that one. Yeah. And, uh, so it was slow learning. And I finally got a turntable, and started collecting some albums. And by then, J.D. Crow in the New South was really hot, and uh, Boone Creek, and mm-hmm. uh, the Country Gentleman, and so I, that was actually my learning really learning stages was getting into Bill Emerson and Terry Balcom and J.D. and trying to... I learned real quick I couldn't play like any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly learned that I couldn't play like Scruggs. And uh, so I just started trying to pull this and that and uh, listen to everybody I could. I remember when uh, Bela came out with... Uh, I think it was Crossing the Tracks was his first album. That was the first one. Yeah. And um, I, I got that, and that was a whole different phrasing and a whole different way of thinking than the guys I've been listening to. So I started listening and kind of picked up on like a... You know, playing those those chord like scales a, a and scale stuff. pattern, right. yeah. Right. And um, so started started picking up on some of that from him and... Uh, but learning how to play medley or melody from J.D. and Terry and Bill and another guy that has been extremely influential and just a dear friend uh, was a local guy by the name of Gene Parker. And he played with the Lost and Found back in uh, the 70s and 80s. Okay. And in my opinion, Gene is probably the most inventive within a Scruggs role. Of anybody huh. I've ever listened to. He, what is it that he does that, um, well, that's he, different about it? He incorporated, you know, like Scruggs pulled from big band era. Sure. He, he pulled from, you know, Dear Old Dixie is a big band song. You yeah. Know, uh, All those in the mood well. roles. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that kind of stuff. And uh, Gene was more into like the, I guess, the country guitar players of the 50s and 60s. 
mm-hmm. and uh, he would do a lot of lot more pull offs and punches and you know just like a you know those okay. kind of double note stabs and I've never the only break that I've ever gotten close to from Gene was the Harvest Time thing that we do and uh, his his solo is like. Just did did those little stabby things and and um, he did one. I haven't played this thing in probably a year, so I may I'll probably not be able to play it. But <laughs> and I've never been able to play it right, but I'll get close to it. It was on a song called Me and Mobile Two and. He could take those melodies and twist them around and syncopate yeah. it. Yeah, 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 big time. And uh, we do out of red, and I kind of take some of his thinking in the second break. And kind of things you know it just just his whole whole way of thinking was just a little bit different from everybody and yeah. i always you know he was he was our hometown hero and i just always always thought it was cool when i'd be at a big festival and lost and found would be playing and you'd see sonny osborne over behind this tree listening you'd see checking him out you'd see jd <laughs> over here listening and they knew how good he was right you know and uh so I was very, very, very fortunate to get to see that guy play a lot when I was a kid. And, yeah, now that you demonstrate that, I, I do recognize that quite a bit in your playing. You, oh, you'll, yeah. you'll twist some of those beats around, and it just gives it a certain funkiness that, yeah, it does. that, that, that other people don't have. That was his whole deal. Strutting to Pharaoh was a song that he wrote. You know. Okay. track all this stuff down now. I'm, not, I'm not as familiar so. he, he put out a solo record back in the early 80s called strutting to Pharaoh. okay and uh, it was just a he played most of the instruments on it and it was just something for him to sell on the table mm-hmm. but it just absolutely kicks my butt
just to hear how he could twist a melody around and and I mean he did there again he did a lot of like big band tunes and just pulled from from stuff that nobody else was doing okay. and uh, and wrote a lot of tunes himself and he's still he's mostly into fiddle now he's retired he's he's in his I guess mid 70s and uh, but uh, when he goes to a jam session you can't hardly get him to play a banjo anymore uh-huh. I had to beg him <laughs> that's you know. too bad and, uh, is he as good at fiddle as he is on Oh, he's banjo? great. Yeah. yeah, he's great. And and just loves the fiddle. Cool. I mean, he absolutely loves to play it. And he played banjo so long, I think he just got jaded and tired of it. Needed, yeah, needed to feel like he's progressing at something again. Right, yeah, right. I, I know how that is. But I'd say overall, uh, he's he's my hero. I mean, that's the guy that I've gone to the most over the years to try to find ideas and kind of base what I do. And Lost and Found's always been one of my favorite bands. They had some of the classiest music yeah. for bluegrass you'll ever hear. It's yeah. a whole different groove. Definitely. Yeah. So those those first couple things you demonstrated, those were things in your playing that you think he's influenced. Um, where did you, did he also have the, um, so like the other th- other thing with you is just that deep sense of drive and groove. Like you're, you're playing on slow tunes. Right, right. Tends to be very distinctive, at least for me. Where do you think that came from? I just think that that came from years of... uh, I learned early on that I couldn't sing and that if I wanted to do this for a living, I had to surround myself with good singers. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, you have to learn how to be tasteful and not ever get in the singer's way and learn how to play back up, you know, around what they're singing, which basically means you learn the breaths. You are very active at that. Yeah. If listening yeah. listening to your your band anytime there's some space, that banjo creeps in there, but then it's <laughs> it's out of the way again well, right, yeah. right when it needs to be. Because then you become a rhythm instrument. Uh-huh. So you're basically just keeping texture. Then if the singer takes a break or a breath and when when I talk to people, when I do workshops and stuff and, and people that, you know, do a lot of jam sessions out in the parking lot or whatever, I try to emphasize that you should learn to be able to play with the same intensity at this volume as you do... Yeah, and find the same feel, but then there too, people they always ask you what drive is. Well, drive is how you're playing around the beat, mm-hmm. in my opinion. You know, a drive is when you get ahead of it just a little bit without speeding up. Right, and that's it's hard to demonstrate. You know, it's it without the only way I've ever been able to do it is actually take a drum machine into a workshop and try to demonstrate it that way how you can play behind ahead or right on the beat yeah you know and um, i just try to kind of push the timing on the fills 
But then when I'm playing behind the vocalist, I try to be dead center of the beat. With oh, the, interesting. So know. so there's really a lot at play. You you have yeah. to have the intensity and at the a lower timing. volume, and then the timing also yeah. shifts yeah. at the same time. Yeah, and the rhythm guitar and banjo, for us, works together simultaneously in the band most all the time. So he has to do the same. He does the same push. And I, be, I, I probably learned most of that from Tony Rice. I mean, yeah. you listen to Tony's feels between his vocals rhythmically. He always fills that hole, and, and then he's gone. Yep. You know, and I had the great fortune back in the late 90s, around 99, 2000, to get to work with Tony on several dates over a couple of years' time. And actually, the first time I ever got to play with Tony was about 1986, and he sat in with the band that I was in at the time, and it scared me to death when he walked on stage, and he looked at me and told me to kick off a song from Bluegrass Album Band. I kicked it off, and as soon as that rhythm came in, it was like, well, this is just like sitting at home playing to the playing record. with the record. So how amazing! Have fun. Was he singing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was singing back then. So not yeah, not and, only the rhythm, but you hear oh, that voice coming yeah. out of the speakers. Yeah, and, and then watching his dynamics and listening to his dynamics is just the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. You know, and Tony. He probably inspired me. Other than Gene Parker, Tony was the biggest inspiration for me musically because when I was really, really getting deep into learning how to play and how to be myself was when Manzanita came out mm -hmm. with no banjo. Of course, yeah. And sit and play with that record for hours and hours and hours. Being the banjo player for the band. Exactly. Yeah. Because it's great. a grass record without a banjo on it. Yeah. It's the best rehearsal tool ever. Have you ever heard, this is a little bit of a of a tangent, have you heard the story that apparently J.D. was supposed to play on it, but he got the flu the morning of the session, and that's why there's no banjo on it? Have you well, any idea I, if that's I've true? Well, I've heard that, okay. you know, but I never asked Tony whether that was the okay. case. Uh, I was just wondering. I loved that record so much, I didn't want anything to ruin what <laughs> <laughs> the it, feeling it I had. It might not have been. Yeah. yeah, the feeling I had about that record, because the first time I heard it, I listened to it all the way through and didn't realize there wasn't a banjo. Just yeah. because it had so much. It's, yeah, it was all there. And, uh, and Tony filled it so much rhythmically. And then, then, you, then you realize, wow, this is, this is what I need to be playing to. And, to uh, your ear, is that the thing that you describe about surging a bit on the fills, mm -hmm. but then grooving a bit on backup? Is that what Tony does? Oh, yeah, is that, absolutely. Okay. Excellent. Absolutely. And and there's a lot of players have done that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not the first one and I won't be the last, but it's just what the little thing that I've found that that helps our band and, and makes more of a band sound is that rhythm guitar and banjo pushing and pulling right. around everything. And, and Brandon Rickman, our guitar player, is one of the best at it. And yeah. so I'm so blessed to have him there beside me every night. So you said that how you demonstrate those differences is with a drum machine. Is that also how you developed the ability to do that by working with a drum machine, or did that come more well, from some, somewhere else? I have used a drum machine a lot, but also um, just listening to great players and mm -hmm. listening to great records. I mean, like Boone Creek, Balkan was great at it too. And he was a little more on the front on his... Uh, behind the vocal stuff he stayed more okay. on the front but you definitely heard him playing the front when he'd come in and do the fields and stuff right. and um, 
At one time, when I was probably 17, 18 years old, I could sit the needle down on the record player on the Boom Creek one-way track album, Uh and I could play that whole record, change the capo between songs and tune, and never miss a kickoff. As if you're playing it on stage exactly. with, the, with the band it, it i mean i love that record so much and it influenced me so much that i could just sit and play that whole record and non-stop what know? do you think you learned from from that one playing with a band okay being in a band situation and and that's what's kept me in the business for 40 plus years right you know is being able to complement everything around you and that's that's the whole key so it sounds like that the interplay between the banjo and the guitar is that something you specifically practice with your band and it as you're developed. working up. Yeah, I mean it. It, I guess early on, Brandon's been here uh, 18 years. Now. Yeah, and um, so I guess early on, yeah, we did work on that a lot. And like when we were would record records, I would kind of go in. I I was kind of the established guy in the band when he came along so i would go in and we would cut the instrumental tracks and i would put what i wanted to put into it and then he would go back and listen to the places i was moving and then he would come in and 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 work to match it This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by peghead nation with peghead nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, and ukulele, you'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. Go to pegheadnation.com to see their great lineup of banjo instruction with courses like Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans. You can learn Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky the banjo according to Danny Barnes so as you can tell some of the best instructors out there and they all have streaming videos on pegheadnation.com each of these courses include high quality multi-angle video lessons downloadable notation and tablature play along tracks plenty of tunes and songs to play and all you have to do is join any of Peghead Nation's video courses and you'll get a month free just by being a listener of the podcast So what you need to do is go to pegheadnation.com. You'll use the promo code. The promo code is PICKYFINGERS. You use that at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, one word, all lowercase, and enjoy 30 free days of amazing instruction. I'm going to sign up for it basically as soon as I get done recording this episode, and I encourage you to do the same. There's a lot of good stuff out there. So thanks, Pegheadnation, Nation, and I hope you all check that out. Yeah, but now okay. we go in this last record we spent probably 15 hours on all the instrumental tracks and they were done yeah and cut it cut bass mandolin banjo and guitar live you guys just know what you're yeah and doing it was all the, songs you don't have we to don't talk we, about it yeah. we we it was songs we did not know mm-hmm. we charted them go in about the third take we'd have them you Very know cool. and um I, I sit and listen to the song and listen to the singer, and I visualize the melody on the fingerboard, and then I visualize in my head what I've got to do to get that melody across, 
and then I could just sit down and start playing it. You know. I know it's a hard thing to explain, but how should someone go about putting a melody on the fingerboard? That's like the that's the famous thing about banjo. That's right. that's tough, right? It's right. like getting that melody to pop and and how to put it in a roll. It's it's a hard thing to explain. I mean, I've just been doing it so long that I don't even think about it anymore. Right. And the cool thing about every new song and every new melody, you learn a new lick because <laughs> there's going to be something in that song that you've never played before. You have to maneuver so, it in a different yeah, way or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so um, the one song... Uh, Overall, in the 30 years I've been here, the one song that most banjo players mention um, is a song called Who Needs You. And it was, the melody is... (laughs) That's kind of the melody. So, So it's a real bluesy thing. So I... that was real Stanley-esque. It had kind of a Ralph Stanley, you know, the... Pretty Polly or something, yeah. That lick right there, to me, is Ralph Stanley, you know. <laughs> so... It, Keeping it, the index on it, I think, yeah, is, the, yeah. is the thing there. Yeah. And so, I mean, I just sat down with those things and... and but like I say, now it's to the point after playing for 50 plus years that I can visualize it. And, you know, luckily we, we're capo bound, so yeah, <laughs> we can uh, move to whatever key to do yeah. it. Or, but if it's in D, then you have to visualize how to do it in either D position or a C position at the second fret. And uh, I use a lot of uh, like double C tuning. Oh, do you? Uh, yeah, and a lot of modal tuning. Hmm. Uh, tuning the B string up to C and playing. I do a lot of that. And I, I, anything that that I'll never hit the B string open on, I'm going to play uh, in modal. And... We did a song a couple of years ago called Mahaley's House, and uh, it just had that... Uh, Let's see. You know, yeah, it, it just cool. all rides off of that. And like, I've always played Clinch Mountain Backstep in modal. Interesting. Because you always had to keep that index. Yeah, that, that's there. planted the whole way. I never 
thought to do that, but it makes so much sense. Because oh, yeah, you're right. Otherwise, your your index is just exactly. fixed, yeah. nailed down to the to the board. And so a lot of tunes, like if I'm not doing a solo or if I'm doing minimal solos in, I'll, I'll stay in modal tuning a third of the set sometimes. Huh, cool. And people don't even realize it. They, I, I guess they wonder why. I don't why think I have I'm, either. I guess they wonder why I'm doing a D note there, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't, it shouldn't sound good. He's playing the wrong note. <laughs> um, talking back about the, you know, the rhythm that your that your band does, over the years you've had to hire tons of different new bandmates for yourself. Right. Do you have a sound that you that you hear for your band and try to hire people that fit that sound or do you just try to hire people that are, are really good at what they do and that becomes the band sound going it's, forward it's been both okay. uh you know i mean and when i joined the band there really wasn't an established sound at that point they'd been around about eight years uh in that eight years they had had uh one two three I think six different banjo players. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, so it was pretty easy for me to come in and establish my thing. Uh-huh. And with Tim Austin, at, he was the the band leader and owner at that time. He was the rhythm guitar player. So I had I came from a group called the Virginia Squires, which was more contemporary, um, kind of almost new grassish. Uh, Newgrass Revival-ish, but it wasn't near as downbeat-driven as what Lonesome River Band was. Yeah. Uh, Tim was real downbeat-driven with his rhythm playing. So I changed my style a lot in the first six months hmm. of playing with the band. But it was it was a style, it was a sound that I liked. It was close to home. Uh, it was It was just a very convenient gig you know, musically and uh, geographically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I developed stuff with Tim, and then when we did that first album, Carrying the Tradition, Tim would go in and play a rhythm, rhythm guitar track to a drum machine, and then we would add bass. We'd do everything one at a time. Okay. So then I could take that home, you know, oh, yeah. and and listen to all his punches and feels and develop what I needed to do around that. Give it we, the Manzanita treatment, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, so, I mean, we probably, we spent a lot of time on vocals on that record, but there was probably 200 hours went in. Tim owned the studio at that time, so we had free reign. It was okay, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so we probably spent 200 hours on that record, you know, but we, mm-hmm. we wasted a lot of time uh, doing recreational drugs and different things but you know, <laughs> but we did a lot of work too and uh, well it came out all right so whatever the the formula was it <laughs> sounds sounds great did you have an awareness at that point that that band was offering kind of a new sound for what people think bluegrass is or do you even think now that you did no what at that time when i came in Lonesome River Band had kind of gone a more contemporary route through the 80s as well. Uh So when we decided, when we got together and started playing, we were doing all their material from the 80s. And when we got ready to start a record, we just kind of sat down and talked about it one day. And we decided that we were going to cut the most traditional record we were capable of. Hmm. And that's what we got. 
Okay. You know, I mean, it, we we went about it to do it as a traditional album, but it still had a contemporary sound. And today I need an answer, and I won't hear you say. It did something nobody else had done. It, you know, Boone Creek was kind of in that vein. Quicksilver was in that vein. JD was in that vein. But what we did was even different from those three bands. <laughs> and so it kind of, you know, it. That's what gave Lonesome River Band the name that it became in the business. Was that record? To it was. It was just all by happenstance. The, it came out, I think, in August of 91. Bluegrass Unlimited had been doing a song chart mm-hmm. during that time, and we had a couple of songs that got on the chart late in the year. And then in January of 92 is when they started the album chart. Well, we were the first number one album okay. on the Bluegrass uh, Unlimited cool. album chart, and it stayed there for six months. Wow. So it it was just because of that, that's how it got nominated for IBMA and won the album of the year, just just by happenstance that all those things came together over that period of time. At the same time yeah. that you happened to be making that, right, right. that record. Yeah, that's so really it gave cool. it the credibility to win that award. Yeah. Man. How long after that, and maybe it was a gradual thing rather than a specific date, but did you become the the band leader uh 95 okay uh, so not too Tim long. austin left left the band in uh, i guess october 95 and that's when we hired kenny smith reading other and hearing other interviews with you it seems like that's something that you're that you're really proud of you always make sure to emphasize the that role for yourself as, as more than just a banjo player it's it's not so much being proud of it it's just the fact that nobody else would do it Mm-hmm. And I, I never wanted to be a band leader, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've all, up until that point, I was happy just cruising along and and being a banjo player and nothing yeah. else. But just at the time, nobody else wanted to do it, and somebody had to do it. So I took it over, and which kind of led me into being a bus owner, a bus driver. Uh, <laughs> Uh, booking agent uh, oh man you know i've done done all those things and and i guess you know i'm sure my plan has suffered to a point because i don't spend any time on it anymore at home you know it's just if i'm not playing on the road i'm not playing what would you like people to know about what it's actually like to be that person in a band or what would you tell maybe less experienced band leaders about how to how to be successful doing that kind of thing i've never been successful at it i'm still struggling with it every day it's just you just got to put the time in mm-hmm. you know um, booking 
we actually just took over our booking again in the last two or three weeks and uh, because the business is kind of on a downswing and there's not enough money to go around to pay somebody to do it so mm-hmm. um, I'm going to about five hours a day that I used to have for other things is probably going to go into being on the phone you know, and I've got a two-year-old son, so I do daycare with him when I'm off the road. Yeah. So nine hours a day I'm spending with him, five hours a day I'll spend on the phone, and my wife's going to hate me. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget to eat and sleep every yeah, once in a while. Yeah, right, right. I, don't, I never forget to eat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to, yeah, don't have to remember. you got you got yeah, things to right. remind you. That's right. Well, that's a glamorous existence, it sounds oh, like. It's, it's fun. I mean... Yeah. Truthfully, had I known that I was going to stay in the music business this long, I would have probably picked another instrument. Really? I really think so. What would you have? What would you have picked? Something to make money with. What, like a, Fiddle. a like country guitar or something country like guitar. that? Well, if I had concentrated on country guitar in the seventies. I could have made a, a good living in the 80s and 90s with that. Yeah. I did that for a while. I, Bluegrass went through a lull in the late 80s. I bought a Telecaster and started fooling with that and found a band. I was living in Richmond, Virginia at the time, and I found a band that needed a harmony singer, mm-hmm. and I could do that. And so they hired me and let me learn to play guitar as I went. And then I had one. I left Lonesome River Band for six months in 1992. To go to Nashville and work with a group called Matthews Wright and King, we opened, uh, we did seventy-five shows opening for Reba McIntyre okay. over a six-month period, yeah. and then uh, played a bunch of fairs and stuff. Besides, I was home, thir- I was home twenty-nine days in six months, and uh, but yeah. that's most money I ever made in a year was those six was months. Was that in a half year? Yeah, yeah, crazy. And, uh, but um, and I loved it. But the one thing I didn't love was the fact that you never got to see the fans. Hmm. Uh, Just because of the show, the size of the show? The size of the shows, you were backstage and backstage only. Mm -hmm. And and I dismissed the fan contact. And that's the reason I came back to Bluegrass. Because I had made so many friends up to that point. And that was so structured... And it was the same thing every day, just a different city. You you didn't know where you were at half the time. You'd crawl in your bunk, wake up, all right, it's this time I got to be here to take a shower. It's this time I got to be on the bus. It's this time I got to do sound check. It's this time I got to eat. And then a 25 minute show, and then load your stuff up and sit and wait for the bus to leave. Yeah. And uh, it was just so structured. There, you know, I spent most of my time in the bus bunk. Yeah, and I missed. There would be times if I knew anybody in the city we were playing, I'd get them backstage passes just to have somebody different to hang out with. Yeah, you know. And uh, so I I came back early '93 and uh, been here ever since. Yeah, good. But I loved country guitar, but now I couldn't play country guitar because it's not country guitar that you hear on the radio. You know, there's no demand. I hadn't touched a Telecaster in four years. Yeah. Because there's no, nobody wants that. Nobody will pay to hear it. And I miss it. Um, like right now, I got a two year old son, so I can't play at home. <laughs> not, not through the amp anyway, you <laughs> right, mean? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so. do, do you adapt any of the country guitar stuff to your. Yeah, definitely. Playing? You were talking about the slow stuff, you know, the, okay. the ballads and stuff. A lot of right. that came from. 
from playing electric guitar. Interesting. You just don't have the sustain, you know, yeah, that sure. you do on a telly. Yeah. But, uh, so you try to try to make the licks work, you know, for banjo, and that's the reason I played this old flathead. It's got more sustain than any other banjo I own. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Kristen Scott Benson agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. With the Good Time Banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every Good Time Banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from Good Time Ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. Yeah, let's talk about that. What is, is this your primary instrument that you perform with yeah. all the yeah. time? Yeah, and record with. It's a 19, late 41 or early 42. Uh, it was a TB75 original flathead. And uh, it, uh, it came from Ohio. Uh, that's where the original owner was. And a gentleman by the name of Tom Dew bought it from him in 84 he put a five string neck in it went through a couple of hands i i found the banjo in 1987 hmm. and uh tried to trade for it at that time and didn't couldn't do the trade at that time and okay. uh, a few years later i ran into a friend of mine from new jersey and he said you got to play this banjo i got and i went and played it and i said you got this from such and such didn't you and he said how'd you know (laughs) yeah you were able to put it together i knew as soon as i picked it up i knew it and it was it's just it's one of those it fit me in every way yeah from the first time i ever played it and so he got it in 92 uh in 1998 his name was uh uh, troy spencer and he lived over in uh, delaware new jersey line area and uh he he was a songwriter and great banjo player and originally from my part of the country too he grew up in Galax, Virginia but in 97 he was diagnosed with leukemia and in November of 98 he passed away his son was a dear friend of mine too Jeff so I called Jeff up a couple of weeks after I found out he passed and just talking to him about his dad and um, he said well I'm glad you called. He said, we need to talk about that banjo. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, a couple of weeks before Dad died, he told me, he said, if anybody else wants that banjo, sell it for 30000 But if Sammy wants it, sell it for fourteen. And wow. so it was like, give me a day to get the money. Yeah. And I, I, uh, he and uh, Troy's wife ended up financing half of it for me for six months. And I borrowed the money, the other half from a friend of mine. Uh, in 98, I see, in 99, I was paying, I think it was $1,700 a month in banjo payments <laughs> oh, uh, no. the first seven months. And then it dropped back to 700 a month for the last five. Okay. And I got it paid off in a year. 
but it was, it was well worth it and has sentimental value too. Oh yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd hate to have, ever have to part with this. Yeah. Do you know who built the neck on it? Uh, this is a Huber neck here. It had a Frank Neek neck on it when I bought it. But okay. I, I had a top tension prior to this one. It was an original five-string, so it had the radius I've played board. that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it had a radius board, and I'd always kind of missed the radius. Mm-hmm. So um, I had Huber build this neck about six or seven years ago. Okay, and, with the radius yeah, to, yeah. to give you that. Yeah, and I, I my Sheeler model um, with Huber... It's a copy of this banjo, but it also had the radius board on it. All right. And this one didn't, so I just wanted them to match. And yeah, that seems a little silly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you said it fits you in every way. What uh, What is it that you that you hear that you like so much about it? I can play it as hard as I want to, and it won't give up. It's, it's the headroom. Yeah, for days. Huh. And it has a depth to it that I've never found in another banjo. Pre-war or otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's just got a little more bottom end, which I've always liked. And mm-hmm. you don't have to... You don't have to move your hand far to find it. Yeah. You know. it just, and it, the evenness of it and having the depth even up to there, you know. Yeah, it doesn't wimp out. No, no. Yeah, that's and great. No, nowhere on the neck does it get weak. A lot of a lot of the banjos I've played over the years, once you got past the twelfth fret, the power would disappear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's cool that it has that everywhere. Yeah. So you've owned this amazing banjo. You've owned a, a pretty amazing top tension, and those top tensions are really making a a comeback these days in popularity. What are the what are the differences that you hear just in the character of? A non-top tension versus well, versus that one. The top tension had that I had. It was a maple neck and a walnut resonator, so it was kind of a mixture. Yeah, of, interesting. Uh, it's like a f- floor tones. sweep or something. It was a floor sweep. Okay. It it was ordered in early '42 okay. uh, in Galax, Virginia, uh, and uh, they uh, just wanted a five-string top tension, and that's what they had hanging around. Had okay. an 18 flange and armrest on it. Okay. And uh, the rest of the pot was a 12 with the walnut resonator, and then it had a seven-slotted bow tie neck in it. Yeah. And it was maple. Okay. And um, so it it was a little different beast. It had, it didn't have the depth that this one's got. It was brighter because of the maple neck, I think. Mm-hmm. But it was just so doggone heavy. Uh, <laughs> Which is saying a lot for. For banjos, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. When you add another, when you add, when you have a, a resonator plate that is in the center, a half an inch thick of, <laughs> of heavy walnut. Yeah, they're and, beasts. And then the extra tension hoop, you're adding two to three pounds, uh-huh. you know, of extra weight. And and I knew I was getting some age on me, and it was to, mm-hmm. it was starting to show. And after having this one for six months, I, I would take both of them out and play them on the road, play one one set and one the other. Mm-hmm. And just when I finally got used to this one, it was just, it, it won out. You could really tell the yeah. the difference. Yeah. What else are you partial to? Are you, are you, do you have a favorite bridge or picks or any of that? Or actually, I know you have your, your own model of picks. Why don't you? Yeah, that, that kind of was an accidental thing. A gentleman by the name of Jim Hypes in Narrows, Virginia, started making these stainless steel picks back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Don Reno used them. Um, a bunch of different people used them. 
for years. And in the early 80s, he gave me a set of them. I started fooling with them and playing with them, and the next thing you know, I couldn't play with anything else. Yeah. Just the comfort level. Like, I've been sitting here with you for, what, 40 minutes? I didn't forget I had these on. Yeah. You know, I mean, you just don't feel them. Once you get them set the way you want them and where they fit good, you just don't feel them anymore. Yeah. And it's surprising because it's more of a rigid metal, but uh, it just, there's a comfort about them. So I knew, I guess it was 93, 94, I was at Merlefest and we played on Friday night and had to do a couple of sets on Saturday afternoon. And when I was getting, I guess when I was getting in my car, I was carrying my picks in my pocket at that time. And when I was getting in the car, when I pulled the keys out, I must have pulled one pick out. On oh, the no. When I got home, I only had one. Uh-huh. So I scrambled around and found some Dunlops, or I think it were Dunlops. I put them on and tried to play, and they would kill me. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the next morning, I got up at 7 o'clock and started blowing Jim's phone up. I drove three <laughs> hours out of the way to get one pick <laughs> so I could go back to Merlefest and do do the sets that day oh no and but i ended up getting three more sets from him that time and put them in every case and everywhere i'd ever need them right right and uh quit carrying them in my pocket but uh jim retired quit making the picks and i just felt like that i was going to try to find somebody that could make them and accutab actually started the company and they put my name on it it wasn't my choice i hmm. I, I mean i told them it could but i didn't really want that i just you know i was just trying to get a product out there that people would appreciate yeah and then in 2011 i won the steve martin award and had some cash laying around and john asked me if i'd be interested in buying the company so i bought it from him in 2011 and and it's i mean it's nothing you're going to get rich with but i probably sold 3,000 sets in six years so the ones now are they basically the same as the, the that yeah, first we, set we, that you originally got from yeah the guy? we widened the band and lengthened the blade a little bit mm-hmm. but uh and then we make a narrow band that's pretty close to a national size okay but it's just something about the stainless it's it doesn't irritate your fingers yeah and it stays on um and i mean i can do an eight-hour session and no pain yeah, and I've great. never had a pair of picks I could do that with until I started using the stainless. And now they're widely available, so even if you do uh, pull them out of your oh yeah pocket yeah. on accident, you can you can get a hold of them. I'm kind of mean. I've had people ask me if they could buy one because they lost one. I said, well, uh, if you lose a shoe, will they let you replace one? <laughs> and uh, they said, well, no. I said, okay. <laughs> you, you can figure it out from there. Then if you buy a set, you got a spare. Right. You yeah, know. that's. I'll sell you an extra one and your next that's spare right. one. Both at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what about the rest of this stuff? Bridge and, and thumb pick? and I think I've got a guy in... Full um, geek mode here. <laughs> i got a guy in Elkin, North Carolina named Don Bryant uh, that I met. Snuffy Smith did my setup for years. I, I'm the worst at setting up a banjo. I know nothing about them. They're too mechanical. They're yeah. not an instrument. They're a machine. And they have one little nut and one little screw can make it sound like crap. If aren't he, you aren't you the guy who fixes buses and yeah, stuff? Yeah, but I can't and fix it, a banjo. <laughs> uh, my ears aren't that good. Um, but 
after Snuffy passed away, I went a couple of years, and all my stuff just got to sounding horrible. Oh. And the guy that makes my picks lives near this guy named Don Bryant. And um, Don, he told me, he said, you need to come down and see Don and let him tweak that banjo for you. And I said, okay. So I went down to him, and we've gotten to be just just great, great friends. He's very meticulous about his setup stuff. He mm-hmm. uh, he gets the t- the head real even. He knows what kind of pressure I like on the bridge. Uh, this is a Wadsworth bridge, I think, when there's toasted maple. That's what he's been using. And okay. he gets Wadsworth to do my radius for me. And yeah. um, it's he's just, you know, he's one of them guys that I usually try to go see every three to four months when the weather changes and hand it to him and say, see if it needs anything. Make it right. Yeah, and, he, yeah. and he'll and he usually get it better every time. And oh, you know, really? After you play it over time, you don't really notice the changes. And then whenever he does a readjustment on it, you hear that change immediately. Yeah. You know, so, but Don's been great. He's, uh, you can... Uh, Email me through my website, and I'll give you his number because he likes to work. He loves to build necks. He built me a... a and where'd you say he lives? He North lives Carolina? in Elkin, North Carolina. Okay. Actually, a little town called Thurman, but it's just south of the Virginia border on I-77. Okay. And he's about 10 miles off I-77. A good friend, um, banjo player and dealer, Melvin Cumby, gave me a TB-11 several years ago, and I was looking for somebody to build a neck, and I called Don up, and I said, you ever done one of those necks? And he said, oh, yeah. And he built me just the most beautiful reproduction, flawless TB-11 neck. He matched, you know, because all those 11s were different colors. Yeah, you know, some, they, a lot of them had the very, blue yeah, stuff some going of them on. Had a greenish thing to them. Yeah. Well, he matched the tint on the back of the neck perfect to the wow. resonator. The the stencils he had all those cut to do the right um, fingerboard paintings uh-huh. and all that stuff. And so and, it's not just setups. He's he's like a full blown. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. He's a great and, yeah, Okay. Yeah, and and just well, the sweetest guy you'll ever want to meet. He he retired from Westinghouse. He was an engineer for Westinghouse, but always had a passion for banjos okay. and got into this. He's got his little shop there in his yard, and he just lives banjos, just man. toils away that's at, it. at making things sound good. That's it. Oh, that's great. So do you know what he does to your head in terms of, like, um, a uses, measurement? Or he a uses pitch? a drum dial. Yeah. And he goes to every bracket. Mm-hmm. And actually, another machinist friend of mine... Um, uh, Bill Callahan, he actually makes Telecaster parts in Winchester, Virginia. Callahan guitars. I have his uh, a Stratocaster tremolo system. Oh yeah, from, yeah, 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 yeah. That's well, like the the best stuff you can get. Yeah, Bill, yeah. I, he's a banjo player too. And I wish I knew that. <laughs> I'm talking to him about Stratocasters. Yeah, well, uh, he's he's now the owner of two or three Hubers, I think. He, he's oh, been cool. uh, collecting those lately. But I got, uh, I was told about Bill when I was playing electric guitar and got him to do some setup. Uh-huh. And that's when we started talking banjos. And, and I gave him a set of my picks, and I'm going back down the road from Winchester back home, and my phone rings. I'll pick it up, and it's Bill. And he said, do all these picks look like this? And I said, Yeah. He said, you tell that guy he's one of the best machinists I've ever seen. Oh, wow. And he just, he could not believe how consistent the pig, he just bought three more sets less than a month ago. Yeah. And, uh, but Bill's just, he's design genius Mm -hmm. and actually grew up in the same town as little Roy Lewis. 
oh, Lincolnton, cool. Georgia. Do they and, know each other? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But just all these little things weave together of all these people I've made friends with over the years. Mm-hmm. But um, let's see, what was I talking about? Oh, oh. So <laughs> I forgot, too. Yeah. I'm glad you remembered. <laughs> so I was talking to Bill about the drum doll. He yeah. said, well, I'll make you one. So the next time I saw him, he brings me this drum doll he mm-hmm. made. So then... A month later, I go back up there. I work a lot around Winchester with some friends of his, David and Linda Lake. And uh, Bill found out I was coming up. He called me. He said, come by the shop. I said, okay. So now he's made a thing that I can put on the same meter that the drum dial uses that actually measures the distance between the top of the tension hook and the head. So you get the tension hook even all the way across first, and then you tune it with the drum dial. The distance, so we're talking about the inner, on the surface of the head. Yeah, see, like the, this. The lip that extends upward past it. It's actually, actually, you're probably measuring the distance between the top of the tension hook and the tone ring, because the head's sitting on the tone ring. Right. So right. you're measuring that distance. See, this, this uh, tension hook is warped really bad. Mm-hmm. So it's down a sixteenth of an inch lower on this side than it is on this side. Okay. But on a new banjo, you can take that and go all the way around it and pull them all down at the same... Yeah, make sure it's perfectly level, pushing down. And then once you get... Then you can find the number on your drum dial that gives you the the head pitch that you want. Okay. You know, so... Yeah, because otherwise... Yeah, you're tugging it uh, kind of cockeyed and... And also, you're putting pressure... Not on the center of the head. You're off center with the bridge. Right. So that has a variance as well. Wow. And, and I'm learning all Never this stuff. Never even thought about so, that. I know. I mean, but Bill did and Don <laughs> did. You know, these guys have thought this through scientifically being engineers and, and designers and stuff, you know. Well, now I want to know if the banjo heads themselves are perfect. Like Probably if there's, not. Yeah, if there's yeah, different I amounts mean, of material going yeah, on. You just don't know. Yeah. I mean, but... How crazy. But it, it... And there again, like I said early on, the banjo is so mechanical. It's not really an instrument. You know, the wood's mm-hmm. just secondary with all the parts. Yeah, it's nuts and, and bolts. It just adds some tone. The wood does. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have all them nuts and bolts just right it ain't gonna sound good right right you know. all right man well i think i've i've probably taken about enough of your time is there any other parting words of advice about i don't know pe- people who want to sound like sammy sheeler what's the secret to your <laughs> to your style or what what should everybody go home and work on learn very little about music and then just try to play <laughs> uh you know up until 20 years ago, the first 30 years I played, I knew nothing about theory. I knew nothing. I I got hired to do a session back in 1992. I was playing guitar on electric guitar. And I go in and all these studio musicians and they're playing the song and these guys are writing out. I'm writing the chord changes best I can. And after the song finished, they start talking about all these numbers. And I'm like, what? are y'all talking about and so it seemed like the drummer knew more about it than anybody and i the first time i'd ever met him he seemed like a nice guy and i just called him outside i said dude what's these numbers about oh man you don't know the number system in three minutes he taught me the number system uh-huh. because i did know enough about music to that point 
And I thought to myself, if this drummer knows this much about changes and modulations and all this stuff, I better get on the ball. Yeah, you can't let a drummer outsmart you in terms of chords and notes and stuff. That's... And now he's the drummer that plays on all our records. Ah, cool. <laughs> he's become a dear friend and yeah. has taught me so much about music. Huh. And uh, he's just, he plays on <laughs> Willie Nelson's records. He plays on, he played on the Willie, last Willie and Merle record they did. The video, It's All Gone to Pot. Uh-huh. He's the drummer with the do-rag in the video playing okay. in the studio. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, great. What's, uh, what's his name again? Tony Creaseman. All right. And he, he is and the... And he helped you out. And actually, he learned to play from Mark Pruitt. The banjo Mark, guy. Yeah. Mark Pruitt taught him how to play bluegrass on drums. And so there, that circle. Comes yeah, what back a weird, around. small. It is world. It's and and it was. I'd known Tony for twenty years before I ever found that out. I said because we had done this bluegrass thing, and he absolutely nailed my role mm-hmm. to a T all wow. the way through the song. It was just like me and him were on, you know. And it was second second pass of the tune that we'd ever played it yeah and uh so i said man how did you learn to do that he said mark pruitt showed me how and i'm like okay it all now it makes sense (laughs) and then you go back to tony rice the crossings record i don't know if you ever heard that it's a gospel album that tony rice instrumental gospel album that tony put out i've heard a lot of tony i can't think of that one. look it up okay it's called crossings uh tony's the drummer on that album and he knew how to play with rice. Yeah, you know, said so all this, all these circles just keep coming around, yeah. and it's it's cool. It's we live in a small world in bluegrass. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah, got to let some drummers in every now and then. Oh yeah, we'll we do every record. Give them the secret. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, hey, oh, uh, I didn't even ask. Tell people where to to find you online to check out your tour dates or whatever else you have going on. Yeah, lonesomeriverband.com. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and SammySheeler.com. I do some sideline stuff with different bands. Okay. I try to keep that schedule up on my personal website. I sell my picks through SammySheeler.com. I've got a solo album I did 21 years ago, and it went cardboard, I think, last week finally. (laughs) And uh, it's... uh, you know, we're we're out there everywhere on social media, and uh, we just we love bluegrass and love getting to play festivals like we're at right now. And uh, we'll be back here next year. I just found out. So. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. Well, we love getting to hear you. So yeah, safe travels and all that. And uh, thanks for giving us your time. Thank you. Keith. Really appreciate it. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, featuring Sammy Sheeler of the Lonesome River Band. We had a ton of sound clips in this episode, so in order, way back from the beginning, they were Wish Me Well and Topiary Garden, performed by Rochelle Clark, Ernest T. Grass, performed by Sammy Sheeler, If I Lose I Don't Care, by Charlie Poole, Never on Sunday, with Gene Parker on banjo, Manzanita, performed by Tony Rice, and My Sweet Blue-Eyed Darling, performed by the Lonesome River Band, with, of course, Sammy Sheeler playing banjo on that one got to thank again our lovely talented patreon supporters that's craig lascalzo and adam kerrigan once again you can go to patreon and become a supporter and take advantage of those custom eli gilbert lessons for each episode by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast thank you once again to jerry Iker of the old hippie bluegrass show for providing the rv that we recorded in um man i think i'm finally 
out of things to say. So I'll hope to see you all next time for another episode. It's going to be another great one. So hope to have you back. And that's it for me over and out. Hey, Jerry. No, not yet. What's up? Oh, all right. Yeah, Jesse Smathers makes Becky Buller approved, and it's it's really good. She's got us going. What, has she got a recipe? No. She's just a connoisseur of memento cheese. No kidding. <laughs> so what? how do you know if you have it, an approved She's recipe? She's got to try it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. a contest when she comes around. Me and John Barrow, we have a contest. We make it. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> so that so that's stuff that you made, but it, it got yep. the... Uh, okay, All good right. to know. Well, now I am going to have to try some. <laughs>